Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. Welcome to episode 10 of the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast in the Hidden Histories of Tap Dance Histories, part 4, Heart and Soul. I will be doing an in-depth review of the book Tap Dancing, a tap dance instructional book written by a British author, Derek Hartley, published in London in 2007 as part of the Teach Yourself brand of self-study books, punctuating every chapter of Teach Yourself Tap Dancing, are pictures of garishly mangled-with-love tap shoes, wonderfully grotesque images that only a serious tap dancer can truly appreciate. The book is structured around the progression of the tap lessons, each including a snippet of Hartley's take on tap dance history and philosophy. I've compiled them into categories and do not follow the book chronologically. All page numbers are cited in notes at the end of this script which is available to Gasps from a Dying Art Form Patreon subscribers. About the author, Derek Hartley, at the time of the book's publication in 2007, has 27 years of experience in performing, directing, producing, and teaching. Hartley recalls that he would build up, quote-unquote, great stores of energy while running through the woods of northern England as a child and as a young adult, Hartley describes himself as, quote-unquote, a natural decathlete. Inspired by Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly movies on television, Hartley took up dancing, receiving tap dance instruction by Joy Adams, who had worked and trained under the prolific dancer and choreographer Buddy Bradley. Hartley has been a working dancer since the age of 17 years old and, I believe, currently teaches at the Pineapple Dance Studio in London. At the time of Tap Dancing's publication, Hartley estimates that he has taught over 25,000 classes and is ready for 25,000 more. Despite being a British-born dancer and writer, Hartley follows suit with the sense of patriotic pride found in many of the books that I covered in this series, and quotes the introduction to Siegelman and Ames's The Book of Tap, where Eleanor Powell writes that, quote, Tap dance is our American folk dance. It is the red, white, and blue. I don't know how else to describe it, end quote. Many of the books that I reviewed in this series have some sort of flag-waving nationalist sentiments, but this is the first time I've read someone not from North America waxing patriotic about tap dance's origins. What is different about Teach Yourself Tap Dancing is the author's capricious attitude towards his own book, at times berating the very idea of a tap dance syllabus. Hartley writes that, quote, I have never really felt that it was an easy thing to do. There have been books before, not to mention all the usual dance syllabi. 
What could I bring that would be different? End quote. He rectifies these concerns by saying, quote, But then I remembered, I have always wanted to give my particular ideas. Let's say this is teach yourself tap dance my way. End quote. Hartley is clear that scholarship is not the goal and that the book's contents rely primarily on his own life's experience, which raises concerns that the author may commit some uh, opinions are like butts fallacies, but also relieves Hartley of the responsibility of stating any empirical truths or normative rules. In Teach Yourself Tap Dancing, the onus of the book's content is entirely attributed to Hartley. On one hand, I would rather the content be based on something concrete and substantial, but I also appreciate that the book is not misrepresenting itself as a scholarly and fact-based work, and that the contents are entirely the result of the author's own a priori and a posteriori experiences. He's like the Thomas Aquinas of tap dance mythology. Hartley writes that, quote, Rhythm Tap has a fantastic history and exists despite efforts to marginalize it by white European stylists and by those in history who would write the formalized versions we see today in a syllabus. They have, in many ways, impeded Tap's original virtuosity, its spontaneity, and its soul. There is no Rhythm Tap syllabus, for instance, and only lip service is paid by the formal versions currently being practiced. They are, I think, ballet-based in their classic approach to learning. Tap dance being of jazz origin loses its feeling if taught this way, end quote. So why write a syllabus at all? <laughs> Hartley asks himself the same question and answers it, saying, quote, What I will not do is admit that tap is just tap and that there is only one way to do it. You could not say that jazz is just jazz, but you might agree that the waltz is the waltz, for most people. But with the style I am giving you in this book, at the basic levels, there are differences to note between those formalized ways and a more free way. End quote. Hartley is offering you the tools to explore both tracks, that of the more visual West End and Broadway variety, which he calls show tap, and that of the rhythm tap variety and encourages you to explore them both concurrently. I agree from experience, my own personal experience, that a musical theatery codified training can help you land some pretty sweet gigs. But is a bilateral tap dance education the best way to go? Hartley in Teach Yourself Tap Dancing thinks that it is. Regarding tap dance styles, Hartley takes the postmodern approach, writing that, quote, In the introduction, I mentioned that there are as many styles in tap as there are in jazz music. A piano player, after learning the skill, will adopt a style and it is simply inevitable. The same toolbox, the same colors, pianos, fingers, and keys. But everyone has their own touch of style. End quote. I think that Hartley makes a good argument for learning the vocal language and standard techniques of tap dance, and then go off and develop your own style. This contrasts with other methods, like starting with improvisation, style, and choice, and then teaching the you know, proper verbal and physical language second, 
as we saw in an example in episode three of the GASPS podcast. I've seen success from both methods. One way that Hartley says you should not teach tap dance is to teach it like ballet, or as Hartley puts it, that, quote, tap is like ballet, but only in respect of the fact it is a dance language and that it has a set of basic moves with certain characteristics. Steps such as shuffles and pickups are similar to, say, plies and tendus. These can be interpreted or reinterpreted as the style denotes. To teach tap like ballet, however, is a mistake. End quote. Hartley makes the point that, beyond the fact that things have names, tap and ballet are very different and should not be taught the same way. Does that need to be said? Are there really people teaching tap class exactly like they would a ballet class? The answer is yes, like famed tap dancer Paul Draper, as he describes in an article for Dance Magazine from 1954 titled A Serious Approach to Tap Dancing, where the study of ballet and some modern tops Draper's list of minimum requirements for a professional tap dancer. In describing his class, Draper uses more ballet terminology than tap. For example, uh, here's a quote from the article, quote, Begin with a slap left efface, demi-plié, body in écarté derrière, brush right back to arabesque, end quote. Draper ends the article with the following statement, saying that, quote, The steps outlined above are not difficult for a trained dancer yet they are very nearly impossible if your dance education in tap has consisted only of learning, like an animal in a circus, a series of routines and steps that fail to take into consideration the development of muscles, control, balance, and speed, and the fact that you are a very wonderful and awe-inspiring work. A human being, end quote. Hartley and Draper agree that a multidisciplinary approach should be a part of a tap dancer's training, but disagree on how the training should be conducted. Hartley says to be open to other styles, but to train like a tap dancer, whereas Draper would train you like a ballet dancer, putting ballet technique and terminology directly into the tap dancing. I think that this makes for an interesting comparison. Should tap training include ballet training in the lesson, as a parallel study, or not at all. You know, we have a Gasps from a Dying Art Form Facebook page. If you have any thoughts on the subject, uh, we would love to hear from you. I I confess that I did not read Hartley's last quote in full. The full quote goes like this, quote, To teach tap dance like ballet, however, is a mistake unless it is under constant pressure to improvise, end quote. Now, I've thought about this quote for a long time, and I'm still not exactly sure what Hartley means by it. Like, training like a ballet dancer is bad for tap dancers, unless it is improv-focused? How is ballet training conducive to improvisation? I know that there are ballet dancers who improvise, but are they learning that in their classes and company rehearsals? What's different about a tap dancer and ballet dancer in terms of how they practice improvisation? Anything? Everything? I am admittedly perplexed and genuinely interested and would love to one day get some clarification on the matter. In Teach Yourself Tap Dancing, 
Hartley goes into moderate detail regarding some important milestones and concepts of tap dance. There's a short history of the Shim Sham, ascribing it to Leonard Reed, who Hartley describes as, quote-unquote, ethnically American, which is, I suppose, true, and attributes to him that pioneer spirit of championing against struggle. But doesn't mention that Reed was also, you know, ethnically a black American, and that much of his struggle came from that fact. Hartley also fails to mention the Shim Sham's co-creator, Willie Bryant, another tap-dancing mayor of Harlem, and Hartley calls the Shim Sham the most famous time-step in tap-dance history. Is it? Maybe. Hartley asks the question, quote, but wait, what is a time-step anyway? End quote. He answers it by saying that, quote, historically, every dancer on the old stages of America and Great Britain had their own particular timing step. This would set them apart from the other dancers and be identified with them whenever and wherever they went to perform. Each act, and it must be said, most of these acts were male, or sometimes family acts that could include females, would invent a step or signature to give to the band at each venue at which it appeared. And an understanding would be formed between band and artist at the beginning of his turn. End quote. Now that's a fine definition of a particular type of time step. In my research, I've discovered three kinds of time steps, each one tied to a specific period in history. Hartley's explanation of the origin of a time step leads me to believe that this is one from the late 19th century, and I believe this for a few reasons. First, the time step appears to not yet have been codified as the time step. You know, stamp, hop, chain, fillet, stamp, chop, pain, fillet, stamp, hop, chop, step, fillet, chain, hop, chop, step, you know the one I'm talking about. Second, this must be the vaudeville era because he mentions family-themed acts, and earlier minstrel shows were known to include a seedier variety of male-oriented entertainment. My broad guess for the period of entertainment that Hartley is talking about is the vaudeville era between 1880 and 1920, when time steps were used as a tool to keep time for the audience and the band, instead of the more contemporary version, where you use time steps to keep time for yourself, as a compositional and improvisational device, or as the early to mid-20th century version, which consisted of an infinite variation on a single universally recognized step, or the time step. Are there only three kinds of time steps? Less? More? What might the next iteration of the time step be? Again, would love to hear from you on the Gas from a Dying Art Form Facebook page. There are times, like in Beverly Fletcher's tap works, which I covered last episode, when those same references contradict him. In a brief history about tap dance and jazz music, Hartley writes about the multi-ethnic origins of tap dance, saying that, quote, so much intensity formed from so diverse a cultural mix was bound to produce a new and extremely vibrant dance form. This early dance form became known as jazz. Tap was thus the first jazz dance, end quote. Hartley also writes that, quote, tap dance was the precursor to jazz music, not the other way around, end quote. 
Was tap the first jazz dance, and did it predate jazz music? I've heard that said before, and I would like to think that it is true. But the Stearnses would disagree, as they wrote in Jazz Dance that, quote, Jazz, as we all know by now, is different from the music that people from the old world brought to the new, and the dancing that goes with it is different, too. Jazz dance evolved along lines parallel to jazz music, and its source is similarly a blend of European and African traditions in an American environment, end quote. Stearns and Stearns continue, quote, This is an oversimplification, of course, for the process is complicated and varies widely in time, place, and intensity. The Stearns seem to be much less confident in the idea that tap, even jazz dance, is necessarily coming before the music. Hartley is a staunch proponent in regard to jazz music being best suited for tap dancing and recommends the reader to go out and buy, quote, jazz music for the timing in 4-4, end quote, and then provides the ostensible origin of the four beats to a bar meter. Quote, it is always said, writes Hartley, that the Irishman European brought the body and the footwork skills and the African brought the rhythms. I would agree with this, and it seems to me a perfect meeting of minds and cultures. Up until the time of this turbulent mixing, Western dance was only in 3-4 time. The African brought the propulsive rhythm and the timing soon to be known as 4-4, and even an equal number of counts in the bar and easy enough for anyone to understand. A popular music and the beginning of pop music itself, end quote. There are a couple things about this statement that I must address. First of all, it has not been my experience that it is always said that tap is a combination of Irish and European steps with African rhythms, since many of the books I've reviewed for this series say the exact opposite, that tap dance is a mix of European aesthetics and music with African steps. Ooh, those African steps! That's all they brought? Steps? On the right and the left, it's always African steps. It's so stupid. Second, all Western dance was in 3-4 time. Well, that's not true, because what about the Irish reel? Reel music is notated in a duple or quadruple meter, either as 2-2 or 4-4, which Hartley later uses to describe the origins of tap dance, mentioning, quote, unquote, Irish jig and reel dancers as influences on early tap dance. So that's a contradiction in his own book regarding all music being in 3-4 time. Furthermore, in a book published in 1597 by the great British composer of madrigals, Thomas Morley, titled A Plain and Easy Introduction to Practical Music, Morley has charts of what he calls imperfect time that have two four, and eight-note groupings under a giant letter C, which is now known as common time. So, yes, there was music that was not in 3-4 time being made for centuries. Was Morley and his peers influenced by African musicians and dancers in the 16th century? Maybe, as there has always been African people living in Europe, as evidenced in ancient and medieval art 
But the first slave voyage by the British was done by Sir John Hawkins in 1562, at the same time that Morley and many others were composing music in duple and quadruple beat divisions. So I have to say that there is no historical evidence for enslaved Africans bringing the 4-4 time signature to Western music. In my search for the meter and grouping of notes in African music, I stumbled across an article titled Meter and Grouping in African Music, <laughs> A View from Music Theory by David Temperley and published in the year 2000 by the University of Illinois Press for the Society of Ethnomusicology. In this article, Temperley performs a meta-analysis of several studies of African meter and rhythm and concludes that a big difference between West African and Western music is that African music often has no meter at all. Temperley quotes John Miller Chernoff from his article from 1979 titled African Rhythm and African Sensibility, saying that, quote, we begin to understand African music by being able to maintain in our minds or our bodies an additional rhythm to the ones we hear. In African music, it is the listener or the dancer who has to supply the beat. The listener must be actively engaged in making sense of the music, end quote. Another quote by Richard Allen Waterman from his 1952 article titled African Influence on the Music of the Americas regarding the lack of interest in meter by African musicians who instead rely on the audience to keep the beat, much like how tap dancers rely on other tap dancers to keep the beat during an a cappella cipher. Waterman says that, quote, the assumption by an African musician that his audience is supplying these fundamental beats permits him to elaborate his rhythms with these as a base, whereas the European tradition requires such close attention to their concrete expressions that rhythmic elaboration is limited for the most part to mere ornament. From the point of view of European music, African music introduces a new rhythmic dimension. End quote. Instead of meter, Temperley concludes that African musicians have more of a quote-unquote metronome sense rather than a static meter and instead relying on quote-unquote grouping structures which are independent of a meter. One person might be playing a grouping that is three beats in length while another may play a grouping in five beats or six or whatever and it is when they naturally meet up somewhere down the line that's what gives a sense of cohesiveness. I asked my friend John Yost, a drummer who I work with at the Carnival restaurant in Chicago, and who's been to parts of West Africa for gigs, I asked him about meter and African music, and he told me stories about seeing the early transcriptions of African music by Europeans, and that some of them would be in crazy meters, like 17 or 23 or something really long like that, because they were trying to add a grid where there was none. FYI, John had also never heard of the 4-4 meter coming from Africa. What Hartley might be mistaken for 4-4 time in African music, much like early musicologists, is the use of compound meter. Compound meter is basically when the beat divides into groups of three and is found in meters like 6-8, 9-8, and 12-8 and is recognizable by its lilting feel, right? 
One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. See, it kind of lilts to the side. One, dun, 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 dun. That's where the polyrhythms come in. And six, eight, known as compound duple, can have a three and a two feel. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, four, one, four. You see? And 9-8, or triple compound meter, can have both a fast 3 and a slow 3 feel. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 1, 2, 5, 6, 7, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 1, 4, 7, 1, you see? 12-8, or quadruple compound meter, can sound like both 3s and 4s. It might be that last one that Hartley is mistaking for a 4-4 four, four feel, because that rhythm can swing, right? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 3, 4, 6, 7, 9, 10, 12, 1, 3, 4, etc. And swing rhythm is a big part of both African jazz music and jazz and tap dance. So if I had to put my finger on it, I'm thinking that it's the flexibility of the 12-8 time signature that Hartley is mistaking for a 4-4 feel. As far as music for tap dancers is concerned, Hartley recommends jazz music and offers advice on where to start. Quote, Begin with the names of musicians you recognize and admire. Try the current and new jazz names. These may be younger artists with a strong link to this type of music, despite their age. They are refreshing and give new feeling to traditional and well-known pieces as well as inspire with some great original work, end quote. For suggestions, Hartley tells you to, quote, listen to famous singers such as Sinatra, ooh, he gets one name, or Ella Fitzgerald, Stevie Wonder, Billy Joel, <laughs> the great jazz musician, Billy Joel, David Bowie, okay, and Harry Connick Jr., don't forget the classics such as Fred Astaire, Fats Waller, and Louis Armstrong, because it was in this era that music was written to dance to. You can't help but dance when you have this kind of swing playing, end quote. You know, I'm hip to it, and that's a good point, that a Fats Waller tune is not only fun to tap to because it swings, but that some of the, well, you know, songs like that, they were written at a time when people were writing music for people specifically to tap dance to. We know from the couple movies he was in with Robinson, he wrote some music for a tap dancer to tap dance to, so good point. As mentioned, Hartley's own training puts him in the distinguished lineage of dancer and choreographer Buddy Bradley, connected through Hartley's teacher, Joy Adams. And he goes into detail regarding Bradley's life and influence on British theater and dance. Hartley writes affectionately that, quote, the tap style I use is again a blend of sources, and here I must pay homage to my teacher's teacher. He was a famous black American tap dancer called Buddy Bradley, who came to London in the 1940s and stayed to become the city's foremost tap teacher and choreographer into the 1950s and 1960s. He was a very highly regarded dancer and choreographer, and rescued shows in London's West End Theater for such great producers as Noel Coward, end quote. 
I must provide a quick correction. Bradley actually came to London in the 1930s, not the 1940s, choreographing the big hit Evergreen, which appeared on stage in 1933 and on film in 1934, with Bradley actually appearing in the film. So to say that Bradley came to England in the 1940s is incorrect. Hartley continues his Bradley biography and drops a quote from a familiar source and subject of episode 7 of the Gasps podcast, writing that, quote, In the Book of Tap, Jerry Ames says that Bradley, quote, taught the techniques of black hoofers to the emerging group of young white musical performers, end quote. He states that he, quote, preferred the more exact and drummer-like precision of the white musicians, end quote, and that this made it easy to follow and to transform into tap routines, end quote. One correction. Jerry Ames didn't write that. That was Jim Siegelman. Ames only wrote the instructional part in the back. Siegelman got this information from the book Jazz Dance, and in Bradley's own words, the quote reads that, quote, I preferred white soloists in those days because they played like drummers, hitting every note on the head. They were easy to follow, end quote. So there you go, a quote within a quote within a quote. Hartley, minus any source of reference, reasons that, quote, this man, Bradley, can perhaps even be credited as bringing real tap dancing across the Atlantic because in him was the first mixing of black and white influence to produce the kind of hybrid that everyone fell in love with. A clever and respected man, Buddy Bradley saw the opportunity to unite the basic forms of the dance and was solely responsible for its new direction in the UK. End quote. It is true that Bradley was famous for teaching white people how to dance black, and his list of clientele includes Mae West, Ruby Keeler, Lucille Ball, Paul Draper, Fred and Adela Stare. My question is, does the mere skin color of the person dancing automatically make it a hybrid style? Or is it just a white person doing black dance, non-hybridized? When Adela Stare danced with Bradley, she called what he was doing quote-unquote, dirty steps. Bradley taught Anne Pennington the dance, The Black Bottom, and it was Pennington who made it popular to white audiences in George White's Scandals of 1926 on Broadway. The Black Bottom is one dance move with some variations and open to interpretation, but what was Pennington adding that made what she was doing a hybrid dance? She didn't add any ballet arms or Irish toe tapping. Never mind that it was called the Black Bottom, named after the majority African-American neighborhood in Detroit. It is also a matter of record that choreographer and director Busby Berkeley took credit for work that Bradley did in the show Greenwich Village Follies of 1928. On top of that, some of the work Bradley created were straight-up minstrel routines with white women painted brown, dressed in grass skirts and wearing bones in their wigs, which were made to look like disheveled afros. That's just white people doing black dance while pretending to be black people. In Bradley's first big hit in England, 1934's Evergreen, the climax is a dance scene featuring the female protagonist, played by Jesse Matthews in the film version, who stuns the crowd by performing I Shuffle You Not, a tap dance striptease, which causes the audience to laugh and scowl, 
one woman exclaiming, She's a whore! Matthews literally goes from white to black dance styles in this number, and there's nothing hybrid about the fictional audience's reaction. On top of that, Bradley even appears in a short cameo that pops up in the middle of a Charleston dance number, while giant, big-lipped and grinning, googly-eyed, black-face minstrel caricatures are suspended over the dancers like a nightmarish proscenium. On top of that... While Bradley did get credit for his role as choreographer in Europe, he was not credited in the U.S. American release. While there is no doubt that Bradley experienced much less racism in the U.K. than in the U.S., it still seems like his career is white people taking credit for a black dancer's work, and then someone in the future is like, oh yeah, it's a black-white hybrid. I'm not sure that it is. I ask again, what exactly... As Hartley puts it, is this mixing of black and white influence to produce the kind of hybrid that everyone fell in love with? Is skin color, ethnicity, country of origin enough to make any dance that a person learns from someone of a different race, ethnicity, or culture a hybrid style? How much do you need to add? 10%? More? Less? What Draper was doing, now that's a hybrid style because he's literally blending tap and ballet together. But I do not agree that Bradley was doing a hybrid style of tap dance unless you count having to have had it made simpler a kind of backdoor contribution by white dancers. A rudder that would guide his compositional journey, as it were. Of course, I haven't seen everybody Bradley example that exists, and a lot of his work you just had to be there to see. From what I have seen, when Bradley choreographs a ballet number, that's not a hybrid style, that's just ballet. And when they're doing the Charleston, they're not doing a hybrid style, they're just doing the Charleston. I feel that my view that the black dance was just black dance and not a hybrid dance is justified, in my opinion, by the oversized, googly-eyed, black-faced minstrel heads that they felt the need to hang over their heads while doing that part. I mean, they're, they're telling you... What type of dance that is? Obvious to me. And even if you considered a hybrid style to be people of different races performing each other's moves and rhythms, was Bradley the first to bring this style of tap dance to the UK? Minstrel shows, literally white people pretending to be black, and then black people pretending to be white people pretending to be black, was all over the world by the 1860s, as we discussed in episode 2 of the Gasps podcast, extending from the U.S. to England and all the way down to South Africa. Or what about William Henry Lane, Master Juba, who by accounts of the day was a master of every dance and lived and opened a dance school in London? Based on the data provided by Hartley in Teach Yourself Tap Dancing, and everything that I could find on the subject, I must conclude that, no, Buddy Bradley was not a black-white hybrid choreographer, but a black dancer who taught African-American vernacular dance to white people who then did them with not much variation. While white producers affirmed this by using stereotypical black imagery in the background and in the costuming. Hartley writes of Bradley's influence on his own style that, quote, when I found out that it was he who almost single-handedly blended rhythm tap and European tap, or folk tap, shall we say, I thought that was the best way to go myself, end quote. 
No, I honestly have no idea what that sentence means. Is is he calling the European tap folk tap? Did he mean for that to go after rhythm tap instead? If yes, why does that sound more like a predicate for European tap? Listen to it again. Quote, when I found out that it was he who almost single-handedly blended rhythm tap and European tap, parentheses, or folk tap, shall we say, end parentheses, I thought that was the best way to go myself. That sounds like he calls the European tap folk tap, except that there wasn't tap before Bradley came there, not like, I don't know, what is European folk tap now? I mean, I can't tell. I think it's just a confusing sentence. Uh, you know, I think that this is a good time for a break, and I would like to introduce you to my first ever sponsor, Brill Barrett's soul food brand, All Beef Brisket. Do you feel listless, run down? Do you poop out at parties? It could be that you're not getting enough protein. And that is why every active tap dancer should support their health with Brill Barrett's soul food brand, All Beef Brisket. I know what you're thinking. Isn't Brill Barrett a notorious vegan? Yes, he is, and he'll tell you about it. But he's also getting serious about recycling. That's what makes the soul food brisket so great, because it fills both the hole in your aching tummy and the hole felt in all of us, left by humanity's existentially threatening impact on the environment. Each tender, juicy brisket is made from the soles of used tap shoes by the world-renowned Mad Rhythms Tap Dance Company. Each shoe sole is made from 100% beef and has been marinated for over six months on the foot of your favorite Mad Rhythms Tap Dancer, really sealing in the flavor. We then slather them with a robust, non-toxic adhesive and press them together to form a rich, meaty loaf. Each soul food brisket comes with a free spork slash screwdriver, a spew driver, and a 30-day warranty. So hop on board the Chattanooga Choo Choo. Seriously, you'll probably have to chew each piece for several minutes. And get your Brill Barrett's Soul Food brand brisket today. Less than 13% of customers have experienced meat sweats, tight pants, Roomba dancing, exhaustive diarrhea, or romantic comedy. Consult your local pediatrician to see if Brill Barrett's Soul Food brand brisket is right for you. Brill Barrett is not affiliated with Brill Barrett's Soul Food brand or Brill Barrett's Soul Food brand affiliates. Hammond production is not liable for any and all sales or fatalities made or experienced in the southern region of the state of California. Gotta keep the lights on, folks. And now back to some history and... Philosophy in Teach Yourself Tap Dancing partly gets metaphysical with the oft-cited teleological argument for why we tap dance. Teleology, from the Greek word telos, meaning end or purpose, and logos, which means word or reason. In short, a teleological reason for humans to do anything is because we are like machines designed for a purpose and puts the meaning behind actions in their ultimate end. Hartley writes that, quote, Dancing is in every one of us, and rhythm is basic to us being alive. All cultures dance and have danced, and all peoples are in touch with this very primitive strand within, end quote. Hartley also says that, quote, For as long as the human has heard his own footsteps, his own voice, and the sound of the basic music from the beat of the drum, he has wanted to dance, end quote. For Hartley... The proof that we are made to tap dance lies in the fact that we tap dance at all. How could we do something that we weren't designed to do? You are probably familiar with the teleological argument for the existence of a supreme and supernatural creator, known as intelligent design, because how could we even conceive of such a being if we were not designed to? Of course, that all depends on what you mean by the word intelligent, because just look at the platypus. I mean, what the hell is... Well, okay, I'm getting off topic. 
Of course people started dancing. As Hartley says, dancing is in every one of us. I.e., if humans were smartphones, we would have the dancing app pre-installed at the factory and set to default. Exactly who designed us that way is not really important. With the teleological argument, the reason why we dance is because that we do. One problem with the teleological argument for why tap dance is that it implies that our behavior is determined. A machine can only do what the machine is made to do and fails at what it is not. So if you are not good at tap dancing, are you even human? This goes into even darker territory. Like when people imply cultural or biological traits to other people. A popular stereotype that most of you listeners might be aware of is that black and brown people are inherently good dancers and that white people are not. Of course, this is false. Other false stereotypes are that, you know, Eastern Asian people know martial arts, that all men must want to fight, that all women need to do all the jobs that the men don't want to do, or that Germans are frugal with money and sound effeminate when they talk. Well, some make a stronger case than others. The point is that if you cannot do the thing that is ascribed to you based on your race, gender, sex, ethnicity, etc., are you even a member of that group? If not, what happens to your identity, which in most cases is formed by a combination of all those things? In an odd inversion of privilege, white people, in my opinion, get off easy in this scenario because we love when we don't conform to white stereotypes. How many videos have we seen where a skinny white kid is in the middle of a crowd of non-white kids, gets dissed by a dancer, and then busts out in some you know, crazy dance move, and the, and the crowd erupts in surprise? Well, what's so surprising about a kid in a dance battle battling with dance? Well, they're surprised because the kid didn't look like they knew how to dance because of, among other things, their skin color. So if people are designed to dance and someone can't dance... We could conclude, by Hartley's logic, that that person is not really people. Or maybe there is some gray area here that I have not considered. Is the teleological argument for why tap dance the one for you? Something to think about the next time you hear Gene Kelly shout out, Gotta dance! Maybe he really doesn't have a choice. Maybe you don't either. Unless you're a space alien or something. If you are a space alien, find our Facebook... Uh... Hartley then draws a line from primitive man to non-primitive man, which in this case turns out to be British workers during the first industrial revolution in England, beginning around 1760 and lasting to around 1830. Hartley posits that the rhythms of early English folk dances came from the sounds of the new machines, writing that, quote, as he made his millions of machines, he realized that there was a rhythm created by them and within them. He found he could dance to those basic mechanical sounds, end quote. Harley reasons that it was the rhythms inspired by technology, like horseless carriages, looms in factories, streetcars, the sounds of protective footwear, called clogs, on cobblestone streets. This theory is reminiscent of the metaphysical concept of structuralism, that our culture formed out of its relationship to the structures and systems around us. Hartley writes that the machines had, quote, rhythm created by them and within them, end quote. And it is that 
within them that leads me to believe that Hartley is claiming that the machines are more than just objects, but systems that contain elements that were not put there by their creators, the humans, because the humans are being influenced by rhythms that they've never heard before. So how could it be coming from them, the humans? One thing is for sure. The British would have had unique access to these rhythms, as the British forbade the export of machinery, skilled workers, and manufacturing techniques in order to maintain their head start over competing countries. Although some of the rhythms may be uniquely British, Hartley gives credit for the actual creation of tap dance to the good old U.S. of A., writing that, quote, Tap dancing, however, is distinctly American, though the strands that make it up come from all over the world, end quote. Hartley also gives credit to Tap's cultural progenitors, writing that, quote, Europe and Africa are the two main areas of origin, and in Europe, we need to specifically look to England and Ireland for the beginnings of tap dance, end quote. Hartley then recycles a paragraph from The Book of Tap by Siegel and Ames, again, no credit given the Siegelman, about the English and Irish roots of tap dance. And if you want to hear it, check out the gas episode about the Book of Tap, because I say it there, so I won't repeat it here. Now, I have the same qualm with this part of Hartley's book as I did with the Siegelman and Ames book. And, and all the other books I reviewed in the series, really. Why not name some African countries? You say England and Ireland. Why not throw in a Guinea or a Cote d'Ivoire or Benin? Angola, Congo, Senegal, etc. For some of you, I feel like I must say that etc. is not one of the countries. For Europe, it's always Ireland and England, but never Igboland in Nigeria. <laughs> Why not? That's where people came from, just tossing a couple countries. Not that hard. Instead, Harley writes that, quote, In slavery's dark days, the Africans enforced immigration was responsible for the roots of jazz rhythm taking hold in the country of their ominous foreboding, end quote. Enforced emigration. How many different ways do we need to write the word enslavement? People go out of their way to create synonyms for sold into slavery. Fletcher and Tapworks calls it a great exodus. But perhaps I'm being too picky. Why not write lyrically, right? Hartley then writes about Africans and Europeans coming together and says that, quote, the Europeans trek to America, the Africans' infamous journey to America and the West Indies, and the cotton mill workers and the wheels of industry in England all somehow collaborated to put men and women in touch with their inner beat, a heartbeat, a rhythm of life, end quote. I am confused as to why Harley writes that African enslavement and the workers and machinery in England somehow collaborated with each other when we know full well exactly how and why they collaborated. Throw in one other element, unprocessed, unrefined goods from the Americas and West Indies, and combine that with the British factories and African slave merchants, and you get the triangular slave trade. It goes like this. Africans are enslaved and brought to North and South America and the Caribbean, where they worked to produce raw textile goods, like cotton, which are then brought to the aforementioned rhythmic processing machines in Europe. Some of these manufactured textile goods are brought back to Africa to be traded for more enslaved Africans, who work to make raw materials, 
which are turned into manufactured goods, which are sold to slave merchants, and over and over again. That's the triangle. For someone to say in 2007 that these things, quote, somehow collaborated to put men and women together, end quote, is surprising to me, and in my opinion is a naive projection of wishful non-history. The same that I critiqued Beverly Fletcher for in her book, Tapworks, in the last episode. No, we know how these things collaborated with each other to bring people together, and it begins with a capital T and ends with a lowercase, um, triangular slave trade. If you think that I'm being unreasonable and overly judgmental, Hartley would agree with you, and he addresses the controversy by writing that, quote, Tap has always been laid claim to by two or three sources. African Americans say that it is a black dance. The Irish have fiercely defended its origin as theirs, and the English have maintained an interest because of clog dancing. Clog has a history all to itself, as does Irish dance and African dance. But tap is all and none of these. End quote. I have to say, I've never heard an Irish person from Ireland fiercely fight to claim tap dancing as an Irish export. And I've asked a few. I think what Hartley means is Irish Americans, or maybe Britons of Irish ancestry. But I could be wrong. Hey, Irish people from Ireland, how much do you care that a lot of people call tap dance black dance? From my experience, it is not so much, but admittedly, my sample size is low. Would love to get some feedback on that. Hartley clarifies his point by saying that, quote, there are those American voices who have always said and continue to say that it was stolen from them by the white dancers in the early days of minstrelsy. That would be the early 19th century, and there is some truth in this claim, end quote. Okay, so he admits that there's some truth in the claim, but, but why the semantics? By, quote-unquote, those American voices, he means African-American voices, because there are no white people in the U.S. saying that we stole tap dance from ourselves. I'm not sure why Hartley would use a semantic move and beat around the bush like this, but he does. Here we have Hartley expressing the concerns of black Americans, right? That's fine. But then he dismisses them by writing that immediately after, quote, however, everybody stole dance moves from everybody else, and there were certainly a lot of Irish in the emerging cities of America, end quote. I agree that everybody stole dance steps and rhythms from each other, but I think that Hartley is missing the point of why people are upset about the stealing going on in this time period, the late mid-1800s to about the mid-1900s. Hartley directly refers to minstrelsy, where, yes, there was actual theft involved, theft of intellectual property, song, dance, speech, clothing, skin pigmentation, and that real-life money was involved. What do you call the use of another person's intellectual property being used for personal monetary gain without that person's consent or ability to compete? That's stealing stealing. And what I think people are actually upset about is not that people stole steps from each other, but is that they stole steps and then made a career off of it while making fun of the people they stole steps from. And then I, I also got to mention, so what if there are a lot of Irish around? It's like, 
They stole dance steps from them. Yeah, but there's a lot of Irish around. What does that have to do with it? Who was... Yeah, the Irish were the ones stealing the steps. But what does that have to... I don't know. That's weird to just, you know, do address one qualm that, like, black American and perhaps black people all over the world have about the history of tap dancing, and then to dismiss it by saying, like, ah, but there was definitely a lot of Irish around. It's kind of weird. Hartley connects the development of tap in the cities to the rural areas, writing that, quote, the city environment was actually responsible for some of tap's history. But the countryside was also responsible, and that was where the poor black settlers were mainly employed before the American Civil War, end quote. By poor black settlers, he must be talking about the freemen, Men, women, and children who were free, not enslaved, living in the USA between the Revolutionary War against England and the United States Civil War. He must because I've never heard of a settler being confused with a slave. The Europeans who first came to North America, they were settlers. The enslaved Africans were not settlers. According to the book Slaves Without Masters by historian Ira Berlin, Free black Americans made up roughly 9% of the population in the U.S. at the beginning of the 19th century, and most freemen stayed in the South after manumission from slavery. A greater percentage of poor, free black people in the U.S. lived in the upper part of the South, precisely the states of Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia, and a lesser percentage of free black people lived in the lower South, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and Texas. In the Upper South, free black people of various shades of skin pigmentation lived more isolated from white people than free black people did in the Lower South and formed small rural communities. In the Lower South, free black people tended to be lighter in skin color due to interracial relationships, both romantic and malicious. They were more concentrated in cities, were more socially connected to white people, were more likely to achieve greater wealth, and were more willing to appropriate white culture as a means of gaining a higher status. In fact, the light-skinned freemen in the Lower South were viewed as a racial middle class, existing both in the white world of privilege and the black world of oppression. All the while, yes, there certainly were a lot of Irish immigrants and Irish Americans, and they constituted roughly 10% of the country's population in 1790 and continued to grow quicker than, than other ethnic groups. That there was, as they called it, amalgamation between free black people and Irish people is without question, but the dichotomy of class status makes this tricky to reconcile because the group of freemen in the Lower South would have less contact with lower class white people. But those freemen in the Upper South, who are of a lower economic class overall, were more isolated from all white people than anywhere else in the country. And there were black farmers and property owners in the North, but not as many as in the South. Due to how complicated race relations were in the antebellum South, it is no wonder that these contributions to tap dance by these people are often, by these black settlers, are often overlooked, with focus instead on the northern cities. I wish that Hartley would have provided a little more context for his statement that black settlers in the South contributed to tap dance, and I feel like that would have been more interesting than there were certainly a lot of Irish. And I feel like that would have been more interesting than just mentioning that they were there. I'll give Hartley one point for broaching the subject, but only one point for not giving us any further details than they were there. On the next page, 
in teacher self tap dancing, I genuinely think that Hartley makes an error of judgment when he writes that, quote, you have only to watch early films to see the crossover in the dancers themselves, end quote. And that, quote, it is obvious to my eyes that even the great and wonderful Bill Bojangles Robinson himself had a significant Irish influence in his dancing, in feet as well as in body, although he is credited with being one of the black forerunners in the integration of white and black dancing in entertainment all over America, end quote. Okay, two things. First, when we say that Bill Robinson is known for being an integrationist of black and white, do we generally mean that he danced in a hybrid black-white style or that he was one of the first performers who broke the two-colored rule, an agreement among theater owners that no fewer than two black performers could grace the stage? He also wouldn't wear blackface, so people would actually know he was black. I may be wrong... But I think that Hartley is confusing Robinson's dance technique with his breaking of the color bar in theaters. If any tap dancer deserves the style integration credit, it is William Henry Lane, who imitated both white and black dancers before giving people a taste of his personal style, which was a combination of all, yet unlike any other. Or as described in a theater handbill reprinted by Miriam Hannah Winter in a 1947 biography of Lane, and describes a performance as, quote, Imitation Dance by Master Juba, in which he will give correct imitation dances of all the principal Ethiopian dancers in the United States, after which he will give an imitation of himself. And then you will see the vast difference between those that have heretofore attempted dancing and this wonderful young man, end quote. Ethiopian dancer is another name for white blackface dancer. I would say that Lane is better known for his integration of style and Robinson for his integration of spaces and mediums. However, they're both kind of known for that, and I will concede that Hartley's statement of Robinson being known for integrated dance styles from multiracial influences is credible, and that perhaps I am wrong that Hartley is confusing integration of style with integration of space regarding what Robinson is best known for, and this may just be a matter of differing subjective opinions. What I am confused about is the semantic move that Hartley uses when he uses the conjunction although. Although means in spite of, or even though, which means that Hartley is saying here that although Robinson gets the credit for being the forerunner of integrating dance styles, he should have to share more credit with the Irish. Because or else why mention the Irish at all? Hartley essentially says that Bill Robinson was known for integrating white and black dancing styles, but also had some Irish influence too. Those two facts don't conflict at all. The Irish is the white dance influence, so why the although? I'm going to have to do a where's the editor on this one. It's like, it's like the part about black settlers, where Hartley, for some reason, also must include the Irish. Black settlers influenced tap dance, but there were Irish around. Robinson had black and white influences, but there were Irish around. In both cases, the Irish are not pertinent to the point being made, so I shoehorn them in. Now, if you listen to the last Gasps episode, the one on tapworks and colorblind racism, this next section will unfortunately sound familiar. Hartley writes that, quote, Jazz music was part of the African soul. 
with those syncopated and infectious rhythms, but it was formalized and written down by the more savvy and educated Europeans at the time. Later, the descendants of the slave ships from Africa produced their own jazz works, and great musicians such as U.B. Blake, Scott Joplin, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and Fats Waller were merely the most famous of a groundswell of African-inspired music and rhythm. End quote. Okay, three things. First, jazz music is a part of the African soul? As nice as that sounds, and I do believe it is meant as a compliment, what if a black person has no musical ability or just hates jazz? It's kind of like our, our critique of the teleological argument. If we're made to tap dance, what are you if you can't tap dance? Are black people not of African descent if they have no jazz music or dance ability? Do they not have a soul? This is, I believe, an example of colorblind racism. In particular, cultural racism, where stereotypes are applied en masse to an ethnic group, and is an instance of a white person trying to say something nice about non-white people, but instead regurgitates a false stereotype that he, and the editor, if there is one, perhaps can't even see. Second, regarding those savvy and educated Europeans who formalized and wrote down African and African American jazz music, there is someone who might disagree with that, and his name is Jelly Roll Morton. Morton, a man of mixed race, regarded himself as the inventor of jazz music. And whether that is true or not, what is true is that Morton was one of the first to write down his compositions, publishing Jelly Roll Blues in 1915. In a letter to Mr. Ripley of Ripley's Believe It or Not, Morton, in response to a radio broadcast from March 26, 1938, writes that, quote, It is evidently known, beyond contradiction, that New Orleans is the cradle of jazz, and I, myself, happen to be the creator in the year 1902, many years before the Dixieland band organized, end quote. So, no, educated, savvy white people were not the first to write down jazz music. And black people were not late to write it either. This is very easy to prove, as I just did. Third, Hartley calls Duke, Fats, and the rest, quote, merely the most famous of a groundswell of African-inspired music and rhythm, end quote. I have to vehemently disagree. We went from uneducated Africans to the foundational pioneers of jazz music, taking backseat to African-inspired music and rhythm. So many times in Teach Yourself Tap Dancing is a black contributor to the art form just crammed next to a white person. Bradley and white drummers, black settlers and a lot of Irish, soulful Africans and educated Europeans, Robinson and the Irish again, Louis Armstrong next to African-inspired musicians. It just seems so obvious that Hartley wants to drive home the point that tap is a product of African and European to prove tap dance's melting potness, that he feels compelled to make these constant reminders of the fact. I again lob the same criticism upon Hartley as I did on Jim Siegelman and Beverly Fletcher, that Hartley is writing in the same colorblind style made popular after the civil rights movement in the U.S. in the 1950s and 60s when certain words gained new meanings as other words became hate speech, and semantic moves were created to obscure racist rhetoric, sometimes even from the people using them. 
Instead of a romantic version of tap dance and U.S. history, a la Siegelman and Fletcher, Hartley instead focuses on tap dance's ostensible egalitarian roots. Regarding visual aesthetic differences in different styles of tap dance, Hartley writes that, quote, So a shuffle is a shuffle, a heel is a heel. It's the way they are used that denotes the style. It's also very much in the interpretation of the weight distribution. To be brief, styles are, in varying degrees, in the floor or up in the air. These two states are perfectly encompassed in the flatter, floor-bound black American style and the elevated, off-the-floor style of the white Europeans. This European style is essentially Irish, but was later further elaborated by the addition of arms and body lines not previously associated with it. Irish dance has no use of arms in tradition, end quote. Hartley goes on to include examples of the floor-bound black American and up-in-the-air style of the Euro-Irish by listing three dancers who inspired him, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, and Sammy Davis Jr. Hartley writes of these monolithic tap dancers that, quote, to see these three famous dancers, Kelly, the Irishman with his tough and rooted traditional dance culture, Astaire, the European with his fabulous carriage and purpose, Sammy Davis Jr., with the obvious link to earthbound rhythm and sound, is to see three different kinds of weight distribution, one airbound, Astaire, one earthbound, Sammy D., and one Kelly, using both, end quote. I believe what is obvious about Davis Jr.'s earthboundedness is not his African soul, but his black skin. And what is Irish about Gene Kelly, to me, is not his dance style. I mean, seriously, Gene Kelly is one of the goofiest tap dancers. And he's clowning around, making goofy faces and goofy, stiff, wiggly body shapes. I mean, all the time. I would not describe Gene Kelly's tap dancing in most of his roles as reminiscent of a tough Irish peasant. What does make Kelly Irish, besides actually being Irish, is that he often represents the working class in his movies, just as the Irish were considered working class people for a long time in the U.S. and elsewhere. As for Astaire, what makes him European is not only his aplomb, but that he plays wealthy characters always in a tuxedo, often at fancy balls and nightclubs. Hartley writes of Astaire that, quote, He was fortunate in that he was born into the sort of old money that came over from Europe in the late 19th century. He was from Austria, and his real name was Frederick Austerlitz, end quote. Hate to break it to you, but Fred Astaire was from Omaha, Nebraska, not Austria you can still visit his childhood home. So, Astaire gets to be called European, and Kelly is an Irishman. Aren't Irishmen Europeans too? And how is Davis Jr.'s sound and rhythm obviously linked and bound to the earth? These guys were all U.S. Americans. When you get down to some hoofing, they're not that different. And there are scenes where Astaire and Kelly do some bent-over tap dancing in place, like a stair tap dancing in front of a fireplace to the tune of It's Just Like Looking for a Needle in a Haystack from The Gay Divorcee. Or Kelly for like a quick second doing his best imitation of a hoofer in the I Got Rhythm scene from An American in Paris. 
before he starts imitating soldiers and trains and, and, and goofing around. I have to ask, what is more earthbound about Sammy Davis Jr.'s dancing than Kelly and Astaire when they are also in hoofer mode? Is that what earthboundedness is? Fast feet? More complex rhythms? And Hartley continuously goes back to his earthbound African motif and writes in his section on 12 other famous steps that, quote, paddles, then, are the basic ingredient of black rhythm tap. It is easy to see from the paddle's earthy nature that it's a step of African origin because it is definitely floor-bound. A black rhythm tap style does not use paddles exclusively, but they figure greatly, end quote. What is an earthy nature when it comes to a, a tap dance? Other steps in the 12 other famous steps section are cramp rolls that press down into the floor, riffs that dig with the toe and heel into the floor, the train step consisting of a stamp forward that takes weight, you know, stamp ball chain, stamp ball chain, stamp, stamp ball chain, stamp ball chain, stamp. You're picturing it with the arms. I mean, that's pretty earthy. Are these not all floor-bound steps? What is the earthy nature of paddle and rolls that set them apart and makes them a basic ingredient of black tap? So what gives? How can Hartley be saying nice things about people, and yet I'm saying that these descriptions and opinions are no good? How can a compliment be racist? There can be racist compliments. Call them gaffes. And my rebuttal is similar to the one I made in the previous episode about the book Tapworks, endorsed and sold by the Dance Masters of America. Anthropologist and linguist Jane H. Hill, in her book The Everyday Language of Racism, explains that a gaff contains the exact language as a slur, but that the speaker's intentionality is in question. Hill writes that, quote, debate then centers around whether the utterance might be an inadvertent revelation of underlying and hitherto hidden racism, or simply an unfortunate misspeaking or misunderstanding, end quote. Calling African people earthbound, uneducated, that they have a predisposition to song and dance, are not necessarily racist dog whistles, but are all certainly used as racist dog whistles. While I'm not a mind reader, I believe Hartley is using some of the same rhetoric, perhaps unknowingly. We all exist in a systemically racist system, and we are all prone to gaffes and cognitive incoherence regarding what is and is not appropriate when it comes to race. But you can get a pretty good idea just by reading history books from different time periods on the subject. For an author in 2007 to still be talking about the musically inclined, earthbound souls of Africans is evidence to me that Hartley has maybe not spent much time researching the subject, at least not with contemporary sources. Or maybe the contemporary sources are crap and it's their fault. Could be possible. Whatever the reason, I can't help that these tropes stand out to me. As I covered in the first Gasps episode, the stereotype that black people all know how to tap dance and that it is a symbol of servitude to white people is my pitch for the main reason that tap dance went into decline in the 1950s. I get that the author means well, but while the language is nicer than other books I've reviewed in the series, 
It does not add much in new information about the African and black American contribution to tap dance and instead links most of the accomplishments by black dancers with a white influence because there certainly were a lot of Irish around. There is a fair amount of philosophy in teacher self-tap dancing, and to get to the why of tap dance, Hartley says we must first understand the who of tap dance, as in, who is this book for? Quote, who are these people who come to tap class, asks Hartley. Who are you, dear reader, who have bought this book? Who are you out to please with this task? Of course, you're out to please yourself. Hartley says that he's had students from various professions, like doctors, anesthetists, publishers, bank managers, secretaries, nurses, airline personnel, housewives, husbands, actors, singers, musicians, adults, and children, and says that these people have just as many reasons for taking tap class. Write that, quote, I have encountered many reasons people have for wanting to tap dance in my career. I need it because it's my therapy. I used to be good at this. My mother never let me go to dance class. It will keep me fit. It will get me out of the house. It's something for me. Hartley sums it up eloquently, saying that, quote, The common thing is, each person wants to please their self, wants to please their ears and eyes, their heart and their soul, end quote. We've yet to encounter the soul in any of these books I've reviewed in this series, and that adds another dimension, figuratively and, for some, literally. Soul, self, consciousness, whatever you want to call it, Hartley posits that all of these surface-level reasons for tap dancing are not the end goal in themselves, but that they are byproducts of an activity that you do for the part of you that is immaterial, the part of you that exists on another level. Since this part of you is separate from the body, this is not a hedonistic type of happiness, as we discussed at length in episode 7 of the Gasps podcast. Hedonistic happiness in tap dance comes from the physical act of tap dancing just because it's fun, or nostalgic, or that you might lose some weight in a fun way, or impress your friends at a talent show. However, a deeper level of happiness comes from the Epicurean form of hedonism, as developed by the 2nd century Greek philosopher Epicurus, that what is pleasurable is what is best in the long run, and is not necessarily pleasurable in the moment like choosing exercise over television binge-watching, homework over video games, practicing tap dance over only reading books about tap dance history. Well, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Epicurean hedonism means that you binge greedily on the things that are best for you overall, like health and cultivating intelligence and wisdom, and is closer to well-being than what is traditionally meant by hedonistic pleasure. In the Book of Tap, Siegelman posits that tap dance makes you happy because it is just fun. Hedonism, Jim! Whereas Hartley puts fun as merely one of a number of reasons that all lead to a deeper, more final goal, the well-being of the soul. Furthermore, the way that Hartley boils all these reasons down into one universal truth, that people tap dance not to please themselves, but to please their selves is reminiscent of the Aristotelian theory of eudaimonia, meaning 
being blessed with a good God within. Like ultimate well-being, which contains a similar universal goal as Hartley's observation. In the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle, between 335 and 323 BCE, writes that, quote, Every art and every inquiry, and similarly, every action and pursuit, is thought to aim at some good. And for this reason, the good has rightly been declared to be that at which all things aim. But at certain difference is found among ends. Some are activities. Other are products apart from the activities that produce them. Where there are ends apart from the actions, it is the nature of the products to be better than the activities. End quote. Aristotle continues, saying that, quote, If, then, there is some end of the things we do, which we desire for its own sake, everything else being desired for the sake of this, and if we do not choose everything for the sake of something else, for at that rate the process would go on to infinity, so that our desire would be empty and vain, clearly this must be the good and the chief good, end quote. The chief good is something that you do for the sake of doing it and not for any particular result or reward. If you are giving a homeless person money to impress your date, that's kind of good, but not really. However, if you give a homeless person some money and no one is around to see it, and you receive no positive recognition or material reward for your action, but you do it anyway, then that is good. Material and psychological rewards can be viewed as hedonistic pleasure. But the soul or self, if it is indeed a separate entity from the body, cannot receive material rewards or compliments about its body, for it is not a corporeal being. Therefore, doing things to improve the soul or self are not hedonistic, but eudaimonic, and is a means of achieving a universal truth, with happiness as a welcome byproduct. Aristotle implores that we seek out these non-diminishable ends by asking, quote, Will not the knowledge of it then have a great influence on life? Shall we not, like archers who have a mark to aim at, be more likely to hit upon what is right? End quote. Now such a thing as happiness, says Aristotle, above all else is held to be. For this we choose always for itself and never for the sake of something else. But honor, pleasure, reason, and every virtue we choose instead for themselves. For if nothing resulted from them, we should still choose each of them. But we choose them also for the sake of happiness, judging that by means of them we shall be happy. Happiness, on the other hand, no one chooses for the sake of these, nor, in general, for anything other than itself. End quote. A similar universal truth is mirrored in the Bible, in Proverbs 11.17 that, quote, Those who are kind benefit themselves, or kindness is its own reward, end quote. Depending which version you've got of the Bible, of course. Hartley marries the biblical and Aristotelian versions and makes happiness a form of kindness towards yourself, writing that, quote, Maybe those of us who tap dance actually have a kind of deep love for ourselves. You have to like yourself to be able to express yourself, I think. Some of us sing, some of us paint, or write, or build, or compose, or act. Some are tailors, or sculpt, or cook. 
All of these are great artistic endeavors and forms of expressing our own selves. Getting out what is inside. If it's rhythm you've got, get it out somehow, some way. End quote. Like Aristotle, Hartley boils down every artistic endeavor to one aimable goal, in this case self-expression, an action done purely in the name of kindness for another. Yourself. Your soul, self, or consciousness can't really do anything for your body, can't produce any material rewards, or give you an external compliment. So doing things for your soul, self, consciousness is not hedonistic, but eunomonic, and done without external reward, simply because it is the right thing to do. Your reward is rhythm, and that's enough. What about pain? Pain isn't fun, yet pain is a part of tap dance. Just the breaking in of a new pair of shoes can be pretty painful, even before you even get to dance. If pain is not desirable and pain is a part of tap dance, then how is tap dance good for us? Hartley writes that, quote, Ask any professional dancer if they enjoy the pain, and they will say, yes, they do. I speak, I believe, for all working dancers, young or old and male or female, and from anywhere in the world, when I say that to be in touch with all of your physicality at all times is truly a gift from God, and you must be in touch to choose dance as a profession, end quote. Soreness and pain can equal progress. Therefore, pain can also be desirable in tap dance in the long run. Spoken like a true Epicurean. On the flip side... This also implies that there is a wrong reason to tap dance. And if you are only tap dancing to lose weight, or impress someone, or to gain wealth and fame, good luck, or to pick up chicks and or dudes, or both, at the same time, then perhaps you're not going to find happiness in tap dancing, because you're just a hedonist, and not the good Epicurean kind. If you are not tap dancing for the sake of tap dancing itself, Should you even be tap dancing? I think most of us would say yes, but I implore you to think of that adult student in the beginner class who only came for fun or socializing or to dance like Shirley Temple or Rita Hayworth. Well, they don't last very long, do they? They're always frustrated. They don't take direction well. They're throwing their arms up and stopping in the middle of combinations out of frustration If they were to realize that their discomfort is feeling like a tap dancer making progress, then they would enjoy it more. Hartley includes the boilerplate throwaway line regarding tap dance and happiness, writing that, quote, If you've just got to get the rhythm out, what better way than to stick on a pair of tap shoes and tap yourself happy? In fact, you cannot stay in a bad mood once you start to tap dance. It's not possible to tap unhappy. I disagree. There's many times I'm practicing something, and while I'm usually not happy during practice, it's the performance where the practice pays off that makes me happy. But, I mean, sure, we've heard this line of tap dance happiness before, but within Hartley's framework of self-kindness, we finally get a reason why tap dance makes you happy that goes deeper than fun or nostalgia or exercise. And remember... Hartley's teleological reason for tap dancing, that we are designed to tap dance and are simply doing what comes naturally. Combined with our doing it for ourself gives us our who we tap dance for and why we do it. 
Our inner self is designed to tap dance, and by doing so, we allow it to do what it naturally wants to do. We are unrestricting our soul from doing what it is meant to do, and that makes us, as a byproduct, happy. Now that's some tap dance philosophizing. Of course, materialist philosophers would argue that the soul or self or consciousness is not separate from the body, but is just produced by our advanced brains, which would negate Hartley's theory of tap dance happiness. But other philosophers, like Plato, Descartes, Aquinas, anyone that believes that something can exist separate from the material world, really, I don't think they'd have a problem agreeing with Hartley, who is, I think, backed up by Aristotle's view of ethics, supported later by Immanuel Kant's theory of the categorical imperative. So there is plenty to draw on to support Hartley's view of a mind-body dualism and that acting in favor of the soul or self is more virtuous than acting for pure hedonistic pleasure. So there we have it, an instructional tap dance book written further past the new millennium than any of the others that we've covered so far. We can see how it transgresses the older works philosophically, but it still has that veneer of colorblindness, a product of systemic racism, found in just about every other book in this series, and pretty much every place you're going to go. I wonder if Hartley ever changed his mind about some of this stuff, but I well, I guess we'll never know. Ah, well, but that's just a guess from a dying, oh, wait a minute! We can see if Hartley writes differently about tap dance in the future after Teach Yourself Tap Dancing because Hartley wrote another book titled The Essential Guide to Tap Dancing, published in 2018. And I am going to review that book in the next Gasps episode. The Hidden Histories of Tap Dance Histories, Part 5, Heart and Soul, Part 2. We'll see if Hartley retains his views or, if over time, alters his opinions. Jeez, Tap Dance History is part five, Heart and Soul part two. These are starting to sound like Rambo movies. You know, Rambo one is really First Blood, and Rambo two is is First Blood two, Rambo. So the next, and then the next one's just Rambo three. But where'd First Blood go? It should be First Blood three, Rambo two. And then Rambo four is just Rambo. Whatever, I am rambling at this point. Well, whatever. It's time for the Tap Dance Podcast Roundup. Yee-hoo! On episode 60 of the Tap Love Tour podcast, host Travis Knights, a.k.a. the Tap Dance Podfather, interviews tap dancer Josh Hilberman, beginning with Hilberman's time growing up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The home of rhythm dance, Hilberman calls it, or something like that. But he calls it that particularly because it is where Gene Medler runs the North Carolina Youth Tap Ensemble, which includes, as its alumni, Michelle Dorrance, Jared Grimes, Luke Hickey, Elizabeth Burke, and I'm sure many others. Hilberman recalls doing nursing home shows with Dorrance when she was around seven years old. So there might be something to this Chapel Hill theory in Good Tap Dance. So there might be something to this... Chapel Hill theory of making great tap dancers. Hilberman discusses his second start at life following a new marriage, a new child, and a move to Belgium, where he operates a school and practices his French. There is also a prolonged conversation about his famous piece, The Warrior, 
the various reactions to it, and Hilberman's two cents on the issue. Right? Really interesting stuff. I recommend you get on over to the Tap Love Tour podcast and see what all the hubbub is about. On episode 53 of the Have Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast, host Rick Oslin interviews tap dancer, actor, singer, puppeteer, er, Mad Rhythms family member and Stone Soup Rhythms alumni, Time Bricky, fresh off of his stint in Minneapolis, performing a show you might have heard of called Jelly's Last Jam. The two talk about Bricky's influences, his time with Mad Rhythms, they nerd out about tap dance amplification technology, and there's even an unexpected appearance by a famous tap dancer. Really, it's, it's very unexpected. Ricky discusses having to perform a seriously disturbing scene in Jellies and about the audience that assuaged Ricky and the rest of the cast against the show's harsh content. Ricky gives Rick some spoiler-free hints about future projects, so keep a lookout for this up-and-coming, multi-talented performer. There's even a mention of yours truly, but really listen to it for those other things. On the episode titled... How I Met Oprah, host Hilary Marie of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast departs from her usual format to deliver a touching story of when she and the great Dr. Harold Stumpy Cromer met Oprah. There is dressing room drama, music chart thievery, slow shuffling, fantastic philanthropy, and mighty window foo. The story culminates in a heartwarming and spontaneous how to do between a legend and a legend in training. So make sure you give this episode of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast a listen. And if you ever meet Oprah, give her Hillary's contact information because she has a question for her. Let's make it happen. On episode 9 of the Shuffle Live Productions vlogcast on YouTube, Real Talk Tap Talks host Nico Rubio interviews Peggy Sutton, former director of the Mayfair Academy of Fine Arts, a prolific dance studio in Chicago that shut down during the COVID lockdown after 63 years in business. Sutton is the daughter of tap dancer, choreographer, and teacher Tommy Sutton, and she talks about her time learning and dancing with her father and in uh, various iterations of his performance company. Sutton also talks about the history of the Mayfair Academy, some of the famous alumni that have taken classes there, who range from hip-hop stars to a former first lady. And, of course, there is the trademark tap nerd section, right, where where, uh, Rubio asks nerdy tap dance questions, like, what is Sutton's tap shoe of choice? What is her favorite musical artist? And who is her favorite tap dancer? Spoiler, Sutton's favorite tap dancer is her father. Big surprise. Help keep the Mayfair and Sutton legacy alive and tune into the Real Talk Tap Talks and experience the history. On episode two of the Either And podcast, host and Mad Rhythms podcast network, executive producer and recycled meat slinger Brill Barrett continues his personal ruminations about important issues. In the episode titled Black History Month, either Malcolm or Martin, Barrett examines both stances of two of the most important civil rights leaders in U.S. history, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malik Malcolm X El Shabazz. 
and ponders if one must really choose one over the other. Sometimes peaceful protest is the way to go, but if that doesn't work, then perhaps a more radical approach is required. To find out how Malcolm X and King Jr. complement each other rather than contradict each other, check out the second episode of the Either And podcast. And that wraps up another episode of Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast. Tune in next time, and I'll see you later. Well, I don't really see you, but you know what I mean. Okay, bye. Excuse me. I mean, nothing. Okay, I, 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 I think we've lost them. I'm looking to the left. I'm looking to the other left. Okay, it's just us. All right, welcome to the bonus section, right? Where it's like, you know, when you had old cassette tapes, even CDs, I remember, if you let the last track play for a while, there'd be a little bonus at the end. And Well, it's always fun to, to either think to look for it or to find it on accident, but this is that. So, uh, for your information... Hartley defines stamp and stomp. So we can finally end the controversy, right? In the Teach Yourself Tap Dance book, Hartley defines stamp as transferring weight and stomp as not transferring weight. So the next time someone asks you, well, how do you know? You can be like on page so-and-so of blah, blah, blah. I forget what page it is, but, but on, you know, you can look it up. And then you can tell them, here is like a source. Ah, but that's just one thing. And then you can say, well, what book do you have that, you know, backs you up? And they're going to say, well, I don't know because I don't care that much about it. But, ah, so. Speaking of gaffes, right? We talked about how gaffes, like in some of these books, you see like compliments that are meant as, well, they're compliments that, that go awry, that you are like... Why would they say that? That doesn't sound like a compliment. Like, what were they thinking? Well, we just had one. So people in the future, uh, you know, here's some political U.S. history for you. Speaking of gaffes, the first lady of the United States in 2022, Dr. Jill Biden, during a conference in San Antonio for the Latino Civil Rights and Advocacy Organization, Unidos U.S., praised the Latino community for their strength of diversity, saying that they were, quote, as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the Blossoms of Miami, or as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio, end quote. Are breakfast tacos delicious? Absolutely. Do Latin people have unique and vibrant cultures? Exceptionally. Are... Latin people as unique and delicious as breakfast tacos? 
No, they are not. Well, I've never tasted one, but well, no, they are not. Comparing people to objects is generally a bad idea, right? So did Dr. Biden and her team make a big gaffe? Or is it, as an article on foxnews.com says that, quote, Mrs. Biden's inflammatory and offensive rhetoric about Hispanic diversity in San Antonio, Texas, was not a gaffe. It is another example of the Biden administration's insensitive, bullying, and politically divisive attacks on minorities in America, end quote. Uh, A minor correction, that's Dr. Biden, not Mrs. Biden, Fox News. Where's the editor? Well, the editor probably changed that. No, I don't believe that that is true, that she's calling people tacos on purpose, right? I mean, she called people tacos on purpose, but... She means it as a compliment. I don't think she's trying to, like, bully anybody by comparing someone to a delicious breakfast taco because they are, you know, delicious. Though I've not had them in San Antonio. I mean, just the thought that any politician or politician-adjacent person would go to the people they want to vote for their party and intentionally insult them is ridiculous. The foxnews.com article argues that, quote, The White House rigorously reviews and scrutinizes all public remarks prepared for the president and first lady. Yet Biden's protectors in the left-wing media say that the words Jill read from a teleprompter, quote, didn't come out correctly, end quote, end quote. Yet, as we learned in the last Gasps episode, the whole point of colorblind racism is that it is invisible and insidiously tricky to point out especially if you are an upper-class white person. A public and political person is perhaps more prone to gaffes than any other person since they are trying to please as many people as possible, which means that they will also displease a little less than as many people as possible. And therefore, diversity uh, is important in every form of business and walk of life. If only for the minor checks and balances one might receive while writing a speech for the First Lady of the United States. Sociologist Benia Silva, in his book Colorblind Racism, is clear that even non-white people suffer from the effects of systemic racism. So it doesn't matter who wrote that speech. That person or persons, despite having the best intentions, and I'm guessing a high level of education, still wrote an insulting clunker of a speech. Now, here's what I think is stupid about all this. The taco comment is not the worst gaffe in the speech. In my opinion, the worst gaffe is the mispronunciation of the word bodega. Bodega is an incredibly fun word to say. Say it with me now. Bodega. Yes, very good. It rolls right off the tongue. I don't care if the teleprompter misspelled the word, but no one is confusing the word bogada which I'm not even sure is a word, with bodega, unless you are not even sure what a bodega even is. I can't know for sure, but I hazard a guess that Dr. Biden has not stopped inside a bodega in a very long time, or else I don't see how she could get that word wrong. She didn't mess it up and say, oh, sorry, I mean bodega, which would be fine. You know, people can, you can say a word wrong. At the risk of you know, doing too much speculation, it sounds like she read the word for the first time in in like 30 years or something and did her best 
which is a class issue of out of touchness, a naivete that is embarrassing and could be classified as a bit racist under the colorblind system of racism, but is not in the overt sphere of Jim Crowism. So Dr. Biden, look up the words before you say them, but I'm pretty sure she wasn't going out there to like bully people. Going back to Hartley's theory of tap dance predating jazz music, I found a couple other authors who also have ideas of how the two evolved together or apart or in succession or whatever. And here are some of them. Author Brian Siebert in What the Eye Hears puts tap dance not just physically side by side with jazz music, but spiritually in the middle of music and dance, writing that, quote, all music begins in movement. Hands on keys, breath on reeds. But a musician dances incidentally, twisting to reach for a note, keeping the beat. While for a dancer, the motions that make the music are to be developed for their own sake. This fact locates tap between the potential abstraction of music and the unavoidable humanity of dance, in which the instrument is the body, the person. So he kind of has stuff happening at the same time, right? Musicians dance on accident, and tap dancers kind of make music while dancing. Uh, It's kind of a tricky phrase. I really got to think about it some more, but I, I think he's... Very beautiful writer. And that's probably my favorite part of what the eye hears. That little blurb right there. Jackie Malone, in her book Steppin' on the Blues, has it all three ways, writing that, quote, the evolution of these dances paralleled and was influenced by the growth of African-American music, especially jazz, end quote. I'm not quite sure how it happens simultaneously, before and after, but... Hey, you know, stepping on the blues. Check it out. It's a good book. When Hartley writes, tap dance was the precursor to jazz music, not the other way around, I believe that he is in the minority. However, I have heard that before by other people. So maybe there's a kernel of truth there. And obviously, there are many authors who have it every way, always, no ways. So more research is required. And you know what? I... I, I'm apologizing for snickering when, when when we brought up Billy Joel. I'm a big Billy Joel fan. I was I was pumping Billy Joel out of my car all through my teenage years. Uh, and I don't mind him being on that list at all. I mean, after all, he's a real big shot. And, I mean, you may be right in criticizing his work, but I'll defend the piano man from here to Zanzibar. And I have a New York state of mind to think that this slander of an innocent man is just the way you are. Don't ask me why, but for my life, Billy Joe's music, well, it's still rock and roll to me. Whenever I'm with my wife on the north side of Chicago, she's an uptown girl, you know, I have to tell her about it, right, the Billy Joel music, and the pressure of having to enjoy it, stresses her out for the longest time. And I tell her that she's inhuman if she doesn't like Billy Joel. But really, she's always a woman to me. I'll smooth it over with her with a bottle of red, bottle of white, whatever kind of mood she's in tonight. And, um... Ah, Allentown. 
Yeah. Allentown.